0: The Fern Line is supported by the Alaska Rock Gym, providing quality indoor climbing to the Anchorage community since 1995. Alaska Rock Gym sports 20,000 square feet of climbing, an entire floor of boulder terrain, beautiful locker rooms, plus expanded cardio fitness and yoga rooms. Whether you're a seventh grader who runs laps up 512 to avoid doing your homework or a grizzled alpinist, training for an overland approach to Kehiltna base camp because you can't afford a bush pilot the alaska rock gym has something for everyone stop by any time to take a tour of the facility or check out the alaska rock gym online at alaskarockgym.com the fern line is also supported by the moose's tooth pub and pizzeria moose's tooth has been a hub of the anchorage community since 1996 offering a great selection of mouthwatering pizzas and salads Award-winning handcrafted beers and incredible live concerts. I mean, what's better after a long day of skiing or climbing than talking about it with your friends over a backpacker pizza in a picture of Fairweather IPA? Not much. To peruse the menu or find out more about upcoming live events, check the Moose's Tooth out online at moosestooth.net. Hey friends, I'm Evan Phillips, and you're listening to The Fernline, a podcast about the lives of mountain climbers. On season two, I'm chatting with alpinists and other outdoor enthusiasts who are pushing the limits of creativity in the mountains and in their daily lives. My goal is to have meaningful conversations with an extraordinary group of people, the folks who choose to live full-value lifestyles in the most beautiful and wild regions on the planet. Well, it's great to be back with you for another episode of The Fern Line. Before we dive in today, I want to remind folks that if you enjoy this podcast, there's a few ways you can help out. You can review the show on iTunes or from within your favorite podcast app. You can tell someone directly, or you can share links via social media or text. And if you're one of those people that finds yourself anxiously awaiting Fern Line episodes, you might consider becoming a backer on Patreon. Patreon. Patreon's a way for you, the listener, to kick down a dollar amount each month in support of this show. I like to consider it a voluntary subscription of sorts. Just keep in mind that every amount that you kick down helps ensure that this podcast remains a viable and sustainable project for me moving forward, and it really makes a big difference for me each month. So thanks for the support with that. To find out how to become a backer on Patreon, you can go to thefernline.com and click Support the Fernline. If you want to get in touch, you can email me directly at thefernline at gmail.com. I continue to get emails just about every week, sometimes every day, and I just love hearing from the listeners. I love that connection that I'm getting with people who are really all over the world. It's a really unexpected benefit for me uh, in doing this podcast, so make sure you say hello. All right, so with that, it's time to grab your favorite beverage and get cozy on your couch or a camp chair and settle in for this episode of The Fern Line. On today's episode of The Fern Line, we'll get to know world-renowned Canadian mountain runner and climber, Adam Campbell. Growing up in the West African country of Nigeria, Adam was drawn to movement and athletics from a young age, whether it was team sports like soccer or more solo endeavors like surfing. But it wasn't until he moved to Canada as a teen that he began to dabble in the sport that would ultimately shape the course of his life, running. In his 20s, Adam narrowed his focus to multi-sport races like triathlons, and he even earned the title of Canadian Duathlon National Champion in 2004. But a few years later, the repetitive nature of the training started to lose its appeal, and Adam began to shift to the more creative form of mountain running. Over the course of the next decade, Adam became a major force in the mountain and endurance running world, oftentimes placing in the top three in a variety of punishing and knee-jarring races around the world. But in August of 2016, all of that came crashing down when Adam took a bad fall in the Selkirks in British Columbia, breaking his pelvis as well as multiple vertebrae in his spine. Although he was rescued quickly and would eventually recover from his injuries, his life was changed forever. I recently got an opportunity to have a conversation with Adam about his life in the mountains, how the accident in 2016 changed his life, as well as the lessons learned and the gratitude he feels today. We started our conversation by talking about his connection with the Canadian Rockies as a teen and how his love for the outdoors and athletics led to his early experiences as a competitive runner.
1: Or I'd come back to Canada and I just loved it here. We'd come to Calgary specifically, or a little, um, my other grandparents lived in Ottawa, and we'd come out to the Rockies. And I, you know, I was just always really drawn to them. And uh, when I was 17, I, was, I went to boarding school, and um, about an hour and a half outside of Toronto. And the school I lived on had um, several hundred acres of land, and. and and I just spent, I really got into to cross-country running at the time. Um, I played a lot of different sports, but there was a lot of cross-country running. I was just really drawn to these big open spaces, because we didn't really have that. It was really, it was more like jungle in Nigeria. And there's just something about the big open space of Canada that really drew me to it. And then from there, I uh, joined the cross-country ski team and um, just revolved into sport from there.
0: So, Ed, was there a, a certain instance or any time specifically where you, where maybe you had a realization where you're like, I mean, like, I'm a runner, uh, I love to travel across terrain, I love the mountains, this is what I'm going to do?
1: Yeah, there was, actually. So our school has, uh, the, the, the boarding school I went to, has a five-kilometer run. But everybody in the school has to do, and it's it's actually um, it's the oldest running race in North America. It's called the Oxford Cup, and it, it like it outdates the Boston Marathon. It's it's, it's really cool, and um, I mean, for most people the school, it's a punishment. But you know, for like a few weirdos like me, it was like the, you know like one of the highlights of the year, and, and I won it uh, in my uh, in my grade twelve year, and. That, you know, it was just something about standing out from the crowd, which I, I really liked, and I liked winning that race. And, re- and that, to me, was the moment when I officially became a runner in my mind.
0: Right. Did you uh, end up going to university?
1: I did, yeah. Um, so I, I went to, to university in, uh, in eastern Canada at Queen's University, and I was studying uh, um, sociology and psych, not really doing anything specific and i was working as a, as a canoe guide for outward bound um it was like an apprentice guide program for outward bound at the time and um i also during that time i also signed up for a uh, for the junior canadian triathlon championships and i entered those and i and i qualified for the canadian triathlon team and ended up um making the world championship team which was it was really cool because it was in Montreal that year and so I got to compete um, in that and then from there I uh, was invited to join the full national team uh, well, at least to train with them and so I dropped out of university in my third year and flew across the country to Canada uh, to, to Western Canada to Victoria and um, trained with the national team for a number of years trying to qualify for the 2008 Beijing Olympics and triathlon.
0: Was there like a transition for you as far as kind of doing those more like organized athletics into doing what you've been doing in the last few years?
1: Training with the national uh, triathlon program was really interesting because it was, it was a really structured training program. And we trained hard. You know, it was a full time. it is what I did full time. It was my. I was. I was a professional athlete. It was my full time career. And when I was there, uh, we had the Olympic gold medalist. We had Ironman Hawaii champion training with us. We had the like the overall world title. champion training with us, so it was, These literally was the best triathletes in the world, and I really, I learned how to train there, And it, but it was really structured and really numbers-based and really results-based, right. and that really didn't suit me, um, and it actually caused me quite a lot of anxiety, I'm not by nature, um, I'm not a numbers person, I'm really much more of sort of a words and an emotions type person.
0: Yeah.
1: And so that the structured training program was really, was really good, and it taught me the fundamentals of how to train properly, but it, it wasn't well-suited to my personality. And there wasn't a lot of flexibility, I wasn't good enough to be able to dictate my own schedule, I was still sort of low enough on the totem that you're like, if you, you know, yeah, kind of have to toe the line, if this is, if you want to be part of this program, which is awesome, because, you know, it's it fully funded and supported, and, you know, you get to travel around the world racing, which is great. We had to do this one program, but it, it really wasn't good for me. And um, so, in about 2006, I realized I wasn't going to qualify for the Olympics, and uh, I was kind of over the triathlon. I think I was a little bit burnt out at that time, and um, there's only so long you can run around the world in a speedo. And, and uh, I, I, I remember seeing this picture of um, his name is Scott Jurek. He's one of the most famous uh, ultra runners in the world at the time. And there's a picture of him running in the in, I don't know exactly which park it was, but there's a park outside of Seattle. He was running through these huge trees, and he had a big ponytail, and he had this (laughs) dog chasing him. And there's just something, yeah, it was super weird, especially because I think he's wearing like a little crop top and tiny shorts. You know, like in the retrospect, like it's a really weird image to get drawn to. Right. (laughs) But um, there's just something about the freedom with which he was moving through the woods, which really, really appealed to me. Nice. And when we were training in travel and we did most of our training in the uh, most of our runs were trail runs because it's just a bit easier on your body. And I really love those, and I really love the long runs. Yeah. And for whatever reason, it's like I really want to be doing what that guy's doing. And so I I dropped the structure and entered my first uh, trail races and mountain running races, and um, yeah, I was just instantly hooked on it. Started doing you know, uh, the first first race I did were shorter the. This uh, typical mountain running races are more like an hour, and then from there, I did that you know, my first uh mountain marathon, which was super cool. It was, to, it was called the Jungfrau Marathon in, in Interlaken, Switzerland. Wow, and you start in the Interlaken and you finish at the base of the Munk, the Eiger, and the Jungfrau up on this glacier. and I was like, Oh my god, this is the coolest sport in the world! This is amazing,
0: <laughs> sweet,
1: and uh, then yeah, and then from there, I did a 50k and then 50 miles, and 100 mile races, and slowly evolved. and just found that uh, the freedom to just sort of move through terrain um, really appealed to me a lot more. And so, and I used that, you know, the, the foundation that I had from that structured training and applied it to the, you know, to sort of my approach to mountain running and ultra running. But it was sort of doing it on my own terms. And rather than look at numbers and worry about paces and things, I started, um, it's, it's kind of funny, but when I'm out running and training hard, I'm creating narratives for myself. So I'm thinking, you know, I'm running, you know, this feels hard. These are the stories I'm telling myself when I'm doing this. These are the thoughts I'm having. That's how it feels to move this way. And then when I get into races, I draw on that. So rather than worry about like what my watch is telling me, what the pace is telling me, I'm drawing on those narratives I create for myself.
0: As Adam's mind opened to what was possible for him in the mountains, he began to hone his technical skills, focusing on rock climbing and more challenging alpine climbs in the Canadian Rockies. Ultimately, the fusion of these new skills with his running would lead to a new arena of creativity in long-distance racing and challenging mountain link-ups.
1: but they can be, sometimes be a little bit contrived. Like they, they don't, it doesn't, sometimes they'll, um, you know, they'll work really hard to make a race a set distance. And it seems very arbitrary to me. And it's not really in that, it's not necessarily terrain, but I would want to run through all my own. And so I find myself while training for these specific events, I. Started scrambling a lot more i started uh, ski touring through the winter because i just started to get really drawn to the alpine and um and basically running through snow in the winter sucks <laughs> and so you know you yeah. feel like, well, it's a lot more efficient put on these skis and you know you can start buying skimo skis so these really lightweight skis which basically it's a little bit like running um across peaks and you can start um going from summit to summit and you can look at terrain in a whole new way. And so I found myself uh, skiing a lot more in the winter and really enjoying that. And as my scramble started to get more and more technical, I was like, well, I'm more or less just soloing now. I should probably start actually climbing a little bit more so I don't hurt myself. And so I started to get more into, uh, you know, going to the climbing gym a little bit initially and then starting to go out and do a few more technical climbing routes. Um, and getting drawn to these big link-ups of peaks and just trying to use my fitness in conjunction with the, like, you know a, a basic level of uh, technical confidence that I was, start, I was starting to work on at the time. And, um, and that became more and more appealing to me, you know, trying to just cover as much terrain in the mountains as possible quickly, mm-hmm. using whatever uh, modality made sense for the season or the terrain I was moving through. Nice. But still taking that running sort of ethic into it and doing it in a very minimalistic uh approach
0: nice, looking back on that time what's a memorable trip or experience you had where you were combining all of those elements maybe maybe one of the earlier experiences you had where you were combining the running and the traveling over terrain and linking up uh mixed with technical climbing yeah,
1: so probably the the one of the more memorable things I remember from that time was um, it, one morning I went out with a couple um, climbers, um, Ian Wellstead and Raphael Solinsky, who are two really well-known alpine climbers in Canada. Right. And uh, yeah, so they're, um, you know, they won a door together. And luckily, you know, I've got the opportunity to know some of these guys. and luckily they're willing to mentor me a little bit and take me out and so uh, ian was training for his uh his guides exam and so we went and did a multi-pitch climb up um it's called the east end of Rundle. we did a like a 12-pitch route i think up east end arundel maybe like a five or 600 meter route hiked down and then from there i drove out to uh, trailhead ran 25 kilometers into the base amount of cinnaboyne uh, slept there that night and the next morning ran up and down a Cinnabon and then ran back out.
0: <laughs>
1: and, which ended up being a super cool day and a really, really cool experience. And uh, I was like, oh, this is a provide some really interesting opportunities here when you have this kind of fitness. Yeah. And um yeah, there's a few other uh runners, climbers, um out in Squamish as well. One guy in particular, Nick elson who has a, a bunch of really fast times. Um, around uh, mostly the Pacific Northwest, but he's uh he's incredibly competent um mountain athlete and I got to go out with him a couple times as well and um you know we did link ups throughout uh around Whistler area and it was it was really cool to to get to see other people you know doing the same kind of thing and sort of um being inspired by them
0: nice maybe I'm gonna switch gears just a little bit here, but can you talk about uh, the role that that creativity plays in this for you?
1: Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really good question. It's funny because um, running and creativity, a lot of people you may not associate them a lot, but uh, I think one of the things that sort of to really started to draw me about these um, personal pursuits, rather than. Uh, necessarily the races is the freedom that they, they give you. You, know, you really can just, you're limited only by your imagination and maybe your fitness and technical competence but being able to sort of draw a line across the sky and be like I want to go and try to run that yeah. is really is really cool um, but then from a more personal level, you know, these really long runs, these 100 mile races and, um, you know, especially when, you know, you're, when you're out there running for over 24 hours you have, you know, like to say you have a thousand emotions per mile in a hundred mile race. And it really gives you a lot of time to think about things. And um, it just brings you back to a really raw, elemental state. And you really have to deal with a lot of emotions throughout that, that process and sort of accept the highs and lows that come yeah. uh, with pushing yourself for that long. And you can't let the lows get you down and you can't let the highs get you too excited because, you know, you can't tell me start sprinting because all of a sudden you feel great, which is the weirdest thing because you can feel like absolute death one minute and then feel incredibly euphoric the next. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, yeah and you just spend so much time inside your own head during those moments and it, it, there is a, a really interesting creative process that comes with that. Like it really allows you to deep you know, tap into some really deep personal thoughts. Or and at other times just try to be as blank as possible as well, which is another, you know, that you know allows you to get into like a flow state, which I think a lot of artists speak about as well.
0: Falling down picking up the pieces Where you run on for days I don't mind being patient for a while I don't mind being patient for some time will you all At some point in time, every athlete is going to experience an injury that has an impact on their life. For some, it might be a torn ligament in a knee, a routine arthroscopic surgery, and some physical therapy, and they're back in the saddle in no time. But for others, well, it's just not that simple. I asked Adam to talk about his accident in 2016, the series of events that led to his rescue, and the gratitude he feels toward the people that supported him through that event.
1: in Rogers Pass, British Columbia. So Rogers Pass, is, it's known as a, as a world-class backcountry skiing destination. Right. But also has really, really quality rock. And it has one of the 50 classic climbs in North America up um, Mount Sir Donald. Right. It's really cool, like 5'6", 5'8", 800-meter ridge with a ton of exposure. Like, it's not, it's not overly difficult. And I I'd run in and, uh, I'd ran in and sold it and run out, which was awesome. And it's part of this big traverse called the Horseshoe Traverse in the Pass. So it's a link up of 14 peaks. And it's this really cool horseshoe feature. And you're going along a series of ridges or across glaciers linking them up. It's just this really aesthetic-looking line, really beautiful. And it doesn't get done very often because it's quite long. It's about 35 miles, and it has maybe 8,000 meters of vert in it. Wow. And you never at really high altitude, but it's uh, it, it, it's it's quite technical. Yeah. And in reading up about it, the fastest time I'd see anybody done it is was about three and a half days. But looking at that profile and knowing to train pretty well in the area, I thought it was possible to do it in one big push. Um, you know, I was thinking we could probably do it under twenty four hours, but you know, it was open to the fact that it might take you know, kind of thirty hours or so. Right. And so I contacted a couple of friends. I contacted uh, Nick Ellison from Squamish. And then there's another friend, Dakota Jones, um, who lives in Durango, who happened to be up in the area. And he's one of the world's best ultra runners. He grew up as a climber. And so he's really, really competent in that kind of terrain as well. And so I proposed trying to do this link up in a, in a day, basically. And they were super keen on it. We met at the campground camp the night before and sort of got our gear together. We had a really, really small rack just to build a couple um, uh, anchors if we needed to repel off anything. Uh, we had uh, two 30-meter rad lines, which is that pepsil, really thin rope just to repel off of. Yeah. Uh, we had harnesses, we had helmets, we had uh, ice axes and lightweight crampons that we were just gonna strap onto our running shoes just to, to link up across the glacier. And we had um, a little bit of you know, a little bit of food and water. We were hoping to maybe find some water en route, and um, yeah, we didn't have a stove. There was no stove, but we, you know, I did have a, a little emergency space blanket with me as well, and a down jacket for night. But otherwise, we were in shorts and t-shirts, and we, you know, off we went at six o'clock in the morning. And uh, yeah, we sort of made our way up to the first the first peak quite quickly, and we we're moving along. Um, really efficiently and uh, Nick and Dakota were moving a little bit faster than I was at the time and I remember being a little bit stressed about that thinking oh crap I'm I'm holding people up I I hate holding people up not really saying anything though but you know I was definitely rushing a bit and not being as uh, steady and as confident in my competence um, as I probably should have been at the time and we'd uh, gone across three peaks. We were going for about four, four and a half hours at this point, and um, you know we are well on track uh, to, you know, we are moving along well. And um, we were two peaks away from Sir Donald. It was sort of the first big test of the day, and so we were all really excited about getting up because it's just such a cool feature. And we came to uh, this big buttress called the um, uh, Salzer Tower. It doesn't even really count as one of the peaks on the on the route. to sort of a little subsidiary before you get onto um, Eagle Peak. And Nick and Dakota were, were moving um, ahead of me, and I was I was behind them, following the same route that they were going up. And we were maybe two thirds the way up this uh, this buttress, and maybe you know, which is maybe like three or four hundred feet high. And all of a sudden, I felt this, I just pulled on this, this block, this block, and I felt it shift on me. And, um, I instantly knew that I was in a shit ton of trouble and, uh, the block pulled back on me and I felt myself just start tumbling backwards down off this, uh, this buttress and it's a series of blocky ledges and I just started going uh, cartwheeling down the ledges and I was conscious the whole time and uh, it was a horrendous feeling and I, I still actually get flashbacks to uh, seeing the horizon uh, flipped upside down and thinking it was really really strange that the last thing I was ever going to see was this mountain horizon upside down and th- there was a strange calm um, about it and because there's nothing I could do I was just in a total free fall I couldn't grab hold of anything and I was just bouncing from ledge to ledge and um, fell about 200 feet and ended up uh, face down in this pile of scree. And I was conscious through the whole thing. And um, I just remember seeing this big pool of blood. And I remember thinking that I don't like that. And I pushed myself up onto my back. And uh, that that jolted me kind of back into uh, consciousness. Not that I was unconscious, but I was. I'd sort of accepted death at that point, yeah. And pushing myself up over onto my back jolted me back into oh my god, I'm alive. And um, and then I told myself at that moment I was like, okay, you can't panic. Like you know, you're you're obviously in a bad state, but you cannot panic. So stay as calm as possible. And I started doing a self-assessment, and I, I knew that my ankle was in a really bad state, I knew my left hip was really sore, and I knew my back was really sore, and obviously there was a ton of blood. And uh, Nick and Dakota, um, I, when I pulled the block out, I screamed, and Nick and Dakota watched me tumbling down the mountain, and they assumed that they were coming to do a body retrieval. And uh, um, they they both have a lot of um, backcountry first aid training and uh, you know backcountry rescue training. And when they started making their way towards me, I started talking to them, and that. They were, they were shocked because they assumed they were coming to, to pick up a corpse that had fallen over 200 feet. And um, they instantly got into, okay, let's get them out of here mode. And that's, that part of Rogers passed their cell signal. And so uh, um, I, had a, I had a cell phone in my pack. Wow. And I told, I told Nick where it was, and he grabbed the cell phone, ran up to the previous peak, and was able to call 911. And um, the Dakota stayed with me and took out you know, our down jackets and wrapped me in a blanket and just tried to keep me calm. And um, it just so happened that this, uh, the search and rescue uh, were doing uh, a little training flight in the area, looking for unexploded avalanche bombs, because it was right along the highway. And within maybe half an hour of my accident, They'd flown over us and spotted us. Wow, which is unbelievable. It yeah,
0: really it's amazing. Is. However, what what happened is,
1: as I was lying there, they flew over us and spotted us, but they had to fly back to to Revelstoke uh, to go and change crews to bring some to get you know an actual like um, extraction crew in. Yeah. in. But I didn't know that <laughs> until we they flew over us. <laughs> and they took off I was like, oh, shit, they haven't seen us. I was like, okay, I'm going to bleed to death here. Um, but then, you know, I was like, no, no, they've seen us. Um, and, uh, you know, they're, they're going to come back. And, uh, and about an hour later, once they got their crew together, they were able to fly in, flew, flew over us again. And once again, because we sort of picked this perfect weather window to, to do this uh, big traverse, um, it, you know, they were able to, to actually fly a crew in and uh, they were able to long line me out of there. And I was, flo- I was. they took me to the Rogers Pass Visitor Center, which is just down in the valley where there was an uh, air ambulance crew waiting when they were able to triage me. And they said they'd never seen somebody who looked as messed up as I did, who was also as conscious and as um, aware of what was going on as I was. God, that's. A-
0: I mean, I'm sure that you have processed this so much in your own life, but as I'm listening to you tell this, uh, God, you are so fortunate (laughs) that, that they were able to get into you so fast. Oh, I was so fortunate on
1: so many so many levels. Um, you know, I, I had two really competent partners with me who didn't panic and knew exactly what to do. And also, I mean, if you're going to fall off a mountain and you have to have people run up to another mountain, bring the world's fastest mountain runners with you. Because <laughs> yeah. they, <can>, you know, <laughs> they can move quite quickly through that
0: journey. But,
1: yeah. You know, really handy in those moments. Um, and But then, you know, there's also just those intangibles, things that I, I, I couldn't have controlled for that... You know the way that I fell. um, You know, a matter of inches, one way or another, and I would have been dead
0: um,
1: or paralyzed. Neither of which ended up happening. And that's through nothing I did. You know, I was wearing a helmet that covered my full um, the basal skull, so the back of my head as well. Because my helmet was fully cracked from uh, the very back of it was was uh, was completely crunched and wow. that's just from falling backwards onto the ledge yeah. uh, repeatedly into that part of my um, my helmet. And I was carrying the rope in my backpack and that may have protected my spine a little bit as well. Right. Yeah, and then oh. also being in the mountain range where we've got some of the most highly qualified search and rescue crews in the world Yeah, on a day when you know they could actually fly in because, yeah, it was, um, I, I was losing a lot of blood at the time and If it if if it had to hike us out, I probably would have made it. I mean, there's no way I could have moved on my own. Yeah, and and then also, you know, being being Canadian, having all these services for free, which is you know not in that moment that's not as critical, but um, you know, not being saddled with a lifetime of debt due to medical bills and uh, search and rescue bills is you know it's, it's a real blessing.
0: Although Adam was successfully rescued from the mountains and transported to the hospital in a relatively short period of time, his recovery would not be so straightforward. It would take months of painful physical therapy coupled with an unending stream of love and support from his family and loved ones before he could resume any semblance of normal life. I asked Adam to reflect on the ups and downs of his recovery and how he processed not just the physical pain, but the emotional pain as well.
1: to make a pretty full recovery which was an unbelievable thing to hear because one I, you know it was like a little bit in disbelief I was like do you actually know what that means to me <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, like, like what, what, what does full recovery mean does it mean i'll be able to like walk around a little bit or does it mean i'll be like a world-class athlete again uh, There's a fine line there for sure um but i it, it was really interesting i almost instantly realized that that didn't matter. And I, I couldn't really dwell on uh, the things that I wasn't going to be able to do because I, I, I really, I almost instantly felt like I, had this, I was given the second chance at life in that moment. And, um, and it, it, sounds, it sounds really cheesy, but I, I was just so grateful to be alive because I knew that there was no reason for me to be alive. And I was gonna have a much better outcome if I just focused on being grateful for anything I was able to do from that point on, right. rather than dwell on the things that I might've lost. Like, and I, and I, like, I just know instinct, I knew instinctively that moving was just gonna be different for me after that. Like, You can't break your back and break your hip and break your ankle and still be one of the best runners in the world. That's just not the way the the body works. It's a very, very harsh thing on your body. But I also knew that I wanted to move again and that I would always move. And moving was just a really, really fundamental part of who I am. And I love it. Like it just, it gives me a lot of pleasure. And so, although I may not be able to compete, I wanted to try to get back to moving as quickly as possible. But that was, it wasn't as straightforward as I thought it was going to be. because the first, I remember mean, the first times uh, being allowed to get up out of my wheelchair, um, this physiotherapist came into the room and was like, well, we're going to have to work on your endurance so you can go to the bathroom. And, you know, you kind of have to chuckle at a little bit because like, you know, two days before I could run 100 miles and now he's telling me I have to work on the endurance so I can go to the bathroom which is literally five feet away. Yeah. And I stood up and instantly just crumpled to the ground. Like, oh, I just, I could oh. not support my own weight. And I was like, oh, this is, this is going to be, this is going to be interesting. Um, and, uh, and I also remember in, that, in those couple of days, though, I, I, a lot of my friends flew out uh, or drove out from Vancouver and across Canada to come and just, you know, to see me because, so, you know, they'd heard about the accident. And a couple of my friends wheeled me. Um, it was one of my first times uh, being allowed to go outside. And so they got in his wheelchair and wheeled me outside. And every little crack in the hospital hurt. Like it was wild. I was just in so much agony at the time. I had a really bad reaction to the, the pain medication I was on and also to the, uh, just the general trauma. And I mm-hmm. developed something called a stomach ilus, which basically my whole digestive system had shut down on me. And I swelled up massively because I wasn't able to process fluids anymore. And that was some of the worst agony I've ever felt. Like mm-hmm. it was, it was worse than any of my traumatic injuries. Was this uh, having my digestive system shut down like that? Jeez. And um, they they wheeled me through the hospital, and every little crack was just was just sheer agony. And uh, they took me into this little courtyard, and it was this concrete courtyard with these little trees in it, and uh, it was like. You know, at any other time, you'd be like, this is kind of heinous. You know? It's a whole concrete courtyard. But I got to feel the cool breeze through my uh, my hospital gown. And it was like, it was orgasmic. It was an unbelievable feeling. I was like, oh, I just, I love being outside. And uh, I'm so glad I get to have this still. And it's just so glad I get to feel this. And like, I just started bawling um, and then being pushed outside, getting to feel that again. And I was like, oh, this is just so healing. Cause the hospitals aren't really healing places, you know, they're um you know, they're very sterile environments and um especially the the orthopedic ward it was on pretty grim, uh, not happy places to be. <laughs> and uh having this little little bit of greenery was just so special. Uh and um it was an interesting uh, it was another interesting perspective shift. Yeah. Um you know, because I spent so much time thinking about these, like, big projects that I was interested in doing and these really big things and moving through the terrain. And all of a sudden, I was forced to to sit there and just, like, admire and feel deep appreciation for this the subtlety of feeling the wind across my skin and, like, just looking at this little tree and, and the sky. It, it's interesting because uh, I've always used... Um, my body is a as an emotional outlet you know being physical is an emotional outlet for me it's how I you know express myself it's how I process thoughts it's how I process emotions fears and gratitude and happiness like all those things and all of a sudden in one of the scariest periods of my life to have my emotional crutch taken away from me was really wild um because it made me have to learn how to process emotions in a whole new way.
0: Yeah, I can imagine um, anybody who's been through a really tough injury could could totally relate to that. Um, can you talk about what was your lowest point, and and how did you how did you pull through that?
1: Yeah, my, my lowest point was definitely when I was having. Uh my digestive issues like it was i can't describe the agony that i was feeling in that period it was it was horrible and the doctors couldn't figure out what to do to make it go away and um although it's funny nothing is ever entirely dark and nothing is ever entirely happy and it's kind of cool that way but um this is very like is thing to say but i remember something like i had this one really funny moment in retrospect and it's like Period of um, like just total agony is um, is about two or three o'clock in the morning, and I couldn't sleep. And uh, I, and like, it, it had lacerations all over my body, so like really, really deep cuts. And I had this huge surgical incisions in my spine and in my hip. And I was lying there in bed, and I just, I just wanted a little bit of relief. And I remember I just grabbed both my legs, and with. Any With every ounce of energy I could muster, I just bellowed my legs into my belly to try to squeeze out this tiny little fart. And I finally got this little squeaker of a fart and just finding, just like basically laughing at how much relief this tiny little fart gave <laughs> me in this moment of like total pain. And, oh. and it just, yeah, you just like brought down to such a raw, basic... Uh, Pleasure, and those moments of agony, yeah. and uh, yeah, it was, it was really wild. One thing that the accident really made me clue into was just how broad an impact my actions had on people. Um, my choice to go out there and do this big mountaineering traverse um, really impacted a lot of people. I mean, it impacted my immediate family in a really, really profound way. You know, like they, they were really scared. And uh, when they first got that call and for nick and dakota i'd have to call my mom to tell her that i'd had this horrible accident and they weren't entirely sure what the outcome was going to be um would have just that would have been horrible so you know it impacted nick and dakota as well who watched me fall watching your partner um, you know in their mind tumble to this death would have like that just be so traumatic to have and then also, um, you know, the nursing staff, the search and rescue crew, the paramedics who were involved. And then beyond that, you know, the doctors that treated me, like all these people were impacted by my actions and all my choices to go out there and, um, you know, to essentially try soloing this big uh, mountaineering route. It was that was, a, that was really eye-opening to me. And then one of the other things was um, I've always really prided myself on my independence and my my competence, my ability to just go out and do things on my own and having, a, and having a high level of aptitude at it. And I was suddenly just made so vulnerable and dependent on people. And learning to accept that and to be okay with that um, really made me have to, I guess, mature emotionally, would probably be the best way of describing it. Right. You know, was you know, probably quite arrogant before that in what I thought I was capable of doing and yeah. all of a sudden I was just scared and broken and um, had to face a lot of those you know, traits about myself, uh, which was really profound.
0: There's a famous mountain race in the U.S. called the Hard Rock 100. Starting and ending in the mining town of Silverton, Colorado, the race is the true definition of a sufferfest, covering just over 100 miles with 33,000 feet of elevation gain run at an average of 11,000 feet above sea level. And I thought Alaskan mountain runs were burly. In 2017, and incredibly just under a year after his accident, Adam showed up in Silverton to compete in the Hard Rock 100. In a monumental display of courage and physical and emotional tenacity, Adam completed the race, proving to himself that he could still live his passion. I asked Adam to talk about this process and what it took for him to finish the race through unrelenting physical pain and overwhelming emotions.
1: really famous 100-mile race in the U.S. called the Hard Rock 100. It's this really savage 100-mile uh, race in the San Juan Mountains in Colorado. And it's, so it's at an average elevation of uh, 11,000 feet. It's got 33,000 feet of vertical gain. And it's, it's this really cool loop because you start in Silverton, you go through Uray and Telluride, and you link it up. So it's like this perfect 100-mile loop. And a lot of it's up in the, you know, the high mountains. You go over Handy's Peak, which is a 14,000-foot peak. And I I finished third at that race twice in the past, and it's really, really special to me. And um, to get into the race, it's a lottery, and they only allow 140 people in the race. The only person who has a guaranteed entry is the previous year's winner. Um, There's this this, uh, Spanish runner, Killian Jornet, who's rather rather famous in the mountain running world and um basically he tells the line he's probably going to win it and so and he's won it the the last few years and so he's he's the only person who had automatic entry into the race Mm -hmm. um but when i was lying in the hospital bed um i was kind of just searching for some normalcy again because my whole life was like kind of rocked at that moment and um the application for for hard rock came up um so i was like literally like in a wheelchair but at that moment in hospital bed couldn't walk at all and this application came up and i was like oh screw it i'm just gonna put my name in and see what happens the odd able to do is really slim but let's just throw our name in the hat and see what happens um you know in 10 months from now we will worry about the consequences later of it and um know yeah, three months later i was out uh three or four months later i i was able to ski tour before i could run or do anything else um There's something about uh, skiing uphill, which is actually quite gentle in my body, and allowed me to get moving again. And um, I I just come back from an easy backcountry ski, and as we got back into cell service, my phone was just blowing up, and I'm like, what the hell's happened? And they're like, oh, my God, I got into Hard Rock. Or I promised myself that I would go into the race just wanting to enjoy the experience and thinking it was really cool that I was just able to get back to a place where I could even contemplate trying a 100-mile running race. You know, I'm still a competitive person, and those competitive juices started to flow. And so when the race started, I went out with the leaders, and uh, I actually felt really good for the first 10 miles, but, you know, everybody feels good 10 miles into a 100-mile race. Yeah. And all of a sudden, though, about two hours in, my body started to, to shut down a little bit on me. I, you know, I really hadn't trained enough for this, and uh, relative to what i you know the kind of training i needed to do to be really competitive at it and um the lead group of runners started to run away from me and that it was wild because it was like this physical embodiment of my former self running away from me and in that moment you know like in the middle of a hundred mile or not even like you know quarter of a way into a hundred mile race having to face my new reality all over again was really in such a, like a a um, striking way. It was really, really profound, and I remember just crying. And uh, I had this sort of—I don't know. It was, I, I guess, I guess it was a little bit of grieving about my previous self because I hadn't allowed myself to to really, you know, think about what I wasn't able to do. I promised myself I wasn't going to. I was just going to focus on what I was capable of, and maybe that wasn't healthy uh, to do that because. As like I say, I took a lot of pride in my physical competence, and um, although I was still very, you know, I was still very able um, on a relative scale, yeah. uh, to have
0: it,
1: to have it really thrown in my face what I wasn't able to do anymore um, at that moment, and I realize how privileged that sounds, um, it was really it was really striking for me, and I just once again I just started crying. I ended up walking for for quite a while, and one of the top um, runners in the world, Anna Frost from New Zealand, um, ran up to me and she stopped and she like she just stopped and just gave me this huge hug. It's like, honey, it's okay, it's okay. Nobody cares how you do at these things. It's just you know we're all just really happy to see you out here. And she sort of she gave me permission to let go of that at that moment, and it was it was exactly what I needed in that moment. It was that was really really special.
0: Yeah, it sounds like that was a pretty big relief for you.
1: Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. And um, you know, you go through stages through recovery from accidents and things. And uh, that was a very, very defining moment for me. And uh, from there, I was able to, you know, go on and finish the race. But I did have quite a lot of trouble in the second half of it. My a lot of pain in my foot and my ankle and my hip and my body really shut down on me in a way that it never has before in a hundred mile race and i remember i had this really big internal struggle because i was like you should be loving this but i was hating it at the same time because it was just so painful i was so uncomfortable and i was just moving in such a different way from what i was used to and i just had there's this um I was just really torn internally because, on one hand, I was like, This is amazing, like, it's awesome that you're out here doing this, it's so cool, this is the stuff you love doing. But on the other hand, not really enjoying the experience as much as I should. Yeah. <laughs> and I was also, um, it was it, one thing that was special about it is uh, Nick and Dakota were able to come and crew and pace pace me in the race. So, for the second half of these races, um, you're often running through the night and through a high mountain terrain, so you're allowed pacers. So basically had a, a friend come and run with you to accompany you in case something were to happen. And uh, so I got to share this incredible experience with Nick and Dakota. So the two people who had saved my life, they were able to come out and I was able to celebrate being back in the mountains with him, which was really profound.
0: Yeah.
1: And uh, yeah, ended up uh, finishing the race and it was just this, you know, huge ball of emotion through the, the whole second half. I, I don't know if anybody's ever cried and ran as much as I did in that, you know, it was you know, 12 or 14 hours. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty wild. But once again, that allowed me, you know, is going back to that whole vulnerability thing and yeah. um, just allowing myself to, to be vulnerable in the moment. And um, there's a lot of power in that and it was yeah. something I've really come to appreciate through this whole process.
0: Yeah.
1: And um, from then, from there after that race, I ended up getting married two weeks later, which was amazing. And one of the things I promised uh, Laura is what I wasn't going to hurt myself so badly that I couldn't dance at her wedding. And luckily, uh, you know, I was able to recover in time to dance at the wedding, which was awesome. Yeah. Um, and uh, through the whole time, though, I also... In assessing what, what had gone wrong in the accident, I realized that I had kind of rushed quite a lot of steps in my sort of mountaineering, uh, climbing... Um, Approach probably like I didn't really you know, you know, I had mentors, but you know a lot of the times would go out and uh, You know, I I was moving quite quickly through the process And so I realized I was sort of skipping steps and so I promised myself that through my recovery um, I would go back and learn how to do things better, you know So like, you know, learn how to place gear better learn how to set up, you know, set anchors properly learn how to do proper rope rescue uh, training, you know, did something like a lot of advanced avalanche awareness and um, I was able to get back out with, uh, with some of the some of my old climbing partners, and um, so I was climbing uh, in Canada with John Walsh, who's a very famous local Canadian climber, like um, a lot of first ascents to the Canadian Rockies. And we were climbing on this fairly remote uh, multi-pitch route. I think it was about a 15-pitch climb. But once you're done the climb, and just got just like tons of exposure. But when you finish the climb, there's another 500 meters of fifth-class scrambling to the summit. And I was more or less okay through the actual climbing and the exposure part. There's something about being roped up, which I was fine with. But for the last part of the climb, when we had to untie and then scramble to the summit, it was through the same kind of blocky terrain that I'd hurt myself on. And I was was quite tired by this point because I'd done a, a pretty big climb the day before and then went out with him. And I just had this breakdown, and I just sat there bawling my eyes out in front of, like, one of the Canadian Rockies hard men. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, I going to think such a wood. And he was great. Like, it was amazing to have him there. He just, like, put his arm around me. He's like, it's okay. We don't need to, to rush anything here. And, uh, you know, we ended up protecting a whole bunch of uh, this terrain, which is, like, you know, in the past, we would just, like, literally run through with him. Um and just reminding me just how lucky I am to have these great people in my life, and how important it is to have good partners as well. And, uh, and from there, continue to to keep working on those technical skills to be able to keep enjoying playing in the mountains in a, in a safe way.
0: Yeah, that's that's awesome. And so, um, uh, r- wrapping up, what so what are some things that you would still like to do? I guess, you know, I guess you could just say in, in the mountains, uh, you know, with your, your your running and climbing, but also, maybe, you know, what's important to you in your life today? And what are you putting your energy into? The
1: amazing thing about it is, that, you know, I've been able to have some incredible mountain experiences with great people. And, uh, you know, I've, I've definitely learned to, to maybe slow down a little bit. You know, like looking at things about how to go fast in them isn't necessarily the best approach or the most interesting approach always I'm a bit more interested in slightly more technical climbing now. Um, it actually feels far safer to me than doing some of that, you know, like low fifth, mid-fifth class, fast-moving terrain uh, yeah. when you're unprotected. That you know, it's super dangerous and, um, and, and you know, it's high-risk, high-consequence kind of stuff. Um, and so, I'm a bit more interested in technical climbing. So, keep developing those skills is awesome. Um, I had the rods removed from my back uh, last year and. I've noticed a huge difference in my mobility this year, which is allowing me to have a lot more freedom of movement. Last year, it felt really robotic when mm-hmm. I was trying to run or climb. And it, I, I just feel a lot more fluid now, and I'm really enjoying that fluidity and um, getting my body to move in a, in a healthy way again. It's, been, it, it, it's a really fun process uh, to evolve through. Um, but from a, a personal level, I mean, one of the reasons I want to do this is I I really just want to have a long safe and healthy life and moving through the mountains and taking, you know, my family out there, taking friends out there and uh, giving people experiences out there as well. Because I I do find that those outdoor spaces, whether you're running, hiking, climbing, you know, um, they're really, really special experiences to share with people and getting people to push their comfort levels just a little bit. Uh, within their uh, chosen avenue is, is interesting. I mean for some people going on a you know, like a group hike for the first time, um, it, it can be scary for them. and whereas I used to be a bit of an elitist, I've really learned that it's a very individual thing and that people have to be have to move through steps you know a level they're comfor- comfortable with right. And, and so, helping to give people those experiences that challenge what they think they're capable of, um, in you know, degree by degree, is it's really special to get to share those moments with people.
0: thanks for hanging out with me today. I hope you got as much out of Adam's stories as I did, and I hope you can apply some of his amazing alpine and life wisdom to your next trip in the mountains. Don't forget to review the podcast on iTunes or within your favorite podcast app, and if you're so inclined, please consider becoming a backer on Patreon. And finally, if you enjoy the tunes you hear, you can check out more of my music on iTunes, Spotify, Bandcamp, and EvanPhillips.net. Until next time, I'm Evan Phillips, and this is The Fern Line.